Welcome to Making Waves. On today's show, we have profiles on two very different projects. One is concerning the archiving of independent audio art activity, and the other is a sound and light installation made with children. I'm your host, Darren Copeland. Making Waves is produced monthly by New Adventures in Sound Art for WGXC Wavefarm. In the second half of the show, I'll be talking to Alexis Baguette. He's a writer, curator, and audio art collector. And he's based in Albany, so maybe familiar to Wavefarm listeners. He's involved in uh, archiving experimental audio art, and in particular, uh, been working with the Vast Collection owned by the New York writer Richard Castellanos. We'll begin the show with an interview with Stephanie Castonguy. She was a guest last month at New Ventures and Sound Art in South River, Ontario, Canada. Uh, at NASA, she produced a community sound and light installation called Electric Bugs, which was created from electronic workshops that she did with students from a local South River public school. The students uh, explored the concept of how sound waves can be transformed into electric light and then converted back into sound by the means of an amplified solar panel. Stephanie Castonguy is an experimental artist uh, who explores the materiality of our disrupted communications through DIY electronic devices and sound installations. She is a member of Perte Signal in Montreal. And uh, in the background, you're hearing some sounds from her electric bugs installation at NASA. And we'll be joining Stephanie in conversation shortly. First to know from you, Stephanie, um, electric bugs just didn't come out of thin air. There must have been pieces and projects that came before it that led to the, uh, the this particular work. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about a little bit about your your background and your interest in in uh, small portable electronics for sound installations. Um. Uh, so. Uh about the, my background, uh, I started studying mostly like uh, visual arts, and in I was studying at uh, UCAM, uh, Art Visuel et Médiatique, um, and uh, during my studies, I started getting interested into like programming, so I started learning uh, pure data and Arduino. So by learning those tools that I didn't expect uh, to actually. Exploring light, radio, and sound energy with projects uh, by Calvin R. Graf. And 
in this book, he explains to you really uh, in a really simple way. Uh, for example, how to make an antenna or how to, uh, and there's like a chapter about how to use a solar panel uh, to um, what to do what he calls, uh, if I remember well, optical listening. Mm -hmm. So the, the really, this is a really simple way of actually uh, listening uh, to, um, to light, the frequency of light. Um, <clears throat> uh, by this using this uh, kind of um, physical um, this this idea of, of the energy being transformed, so it's it's through uh, tran transduce. <laughs> I think it's the name. Transduction. <laughs> so transduction, maybe more like the idea that um, you convert one form of energy into another. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And I've been like playing about with this. Uh, and in one of my latest work that I've done, which is called Scanner Me Darkly, uh, which is an installation uh, that I use uh, to, to make sound performance with it. Uh, I'm, I used um, hacked scanners so that I can control the lights that are blinking uh, uh, by movement. Uh, uh, depending on the, the speed of their rotation, because they're rotating on, on themselves. Uh, <clears throat> and I have the, those solar panels, which amplifies all those um, different uh, light patterns. <clears throat> so the performance itself is just really what you hear. It's it light. It's, it is light itself. Right. Okay. Um, and so that kind of type of conversion and and. Um transferring of light into sound is is explored in electric bugs perhaps um, you can describe to me the the basic circuit uh, that makes uh, electric bugs uh, possible so the first circuits we use with the children is a really simple circuit that i that is like being it's kind of like the ones that you used for um, gift cards uh, in which you can record a message into it. So when the person receives the cards, just opens it, and you have this um, uh, this recording playing. Uh, and it's been like kind of uh, this particular circuit was um, explored by different uh, different hackers, different artists, um, and so it was easy to find like a tutorial and different tutorials about it. So I used this basic um, circuit. Uh, to uh, kind of invite, like the idea was to invite the children to actually add their voices uh, into into the project. So it could be either just voice itself as a tool or to actually um, transmit a message. Uh, so this circuit, the only difference I have added to it is that instead of actually having the sound just going through a regular speaker actually goes through it is like the, the sound frequency at first it's transformed into an, this electric signal so i use this electric signal to make it like kind of visible through a, the use of a led okay. so from this first circuit board you can record your your voice you can even transform the pitch of your voice and instead of hearing it you actually only see it so you need another <laughs> another circuit, which is 
the simple use of a, a regular amplifier with the solar panel. And the idea was to create with the children uh, an installation, a sound installation, um, and above above the um, the circuits which transmits the signal with the LED, um, you have those uh, amplifiers that are simply suspended above them. So they can kind of like move a little bit uh, just by the fact that they're suspended and just kind of pick up different kind of signals from those LEDs. And yeah, so it's basically the, the interaction of the solar panel on the LED basically passes the audio through light, yeah. but passes it from one circuit to another. Yeah. And, and then that, um, the motion, I guess, of moving that solar panel acts as a kind of volume control. You could go from having no sound to full intensity, uh, depending on how close the solar panel is to the LED. Um, you mentioned you referred to children, and uh, perhaps we should expand a bit on that. In that, this Electric Bugs was created uh, in part through uh, an educational program that uh, Pert de Signal in Montreal um, uh, organize uh, or produce. Um, maybe you can describe to me some of uh, the background on that, and you've you've done other projects as well with them working with kids and, and uh, electronics and what is the kind of main driving interest or philosophy behind that? Uh, yeah, so Perte Signal uh, have initiated this uh, activity which is um, Kids Lab Festival. So Kids Lab Festival, the idea also is that we have uh, different activities that is uh, organized during the festival. So we have um, uh, it could be like the activities that are done for the, the three day of the festival or just before we have um, uh, workshops that are being given by artists to the to the students. So um, like I said, it was kind of a way to um, create like a, a contact uh, and a, I don't know how to say it in English. Sorry, I'm losing my words. Uh, maybe a, an exchange <laughs> or a, a, yeah, a community uh, uh, interaction. Yeah, exactly. Like to create this possibility of, of interact and really uh, be close to the uh, creative process also uh, with the artists. Um, the idea also is to uh, kind of uh, share knowledge uh, with the children. So different artists with all of our backgrounds uh, related to technology. Some of us are like um, teachers at universities and other like me are more like kind of like coming from this uh, DIY background. Um, so it's a way to really engage with them uh, and kind of like it's kind of, I see it personally like kind of a, a, a portal like, <laughs> like you can kind of like really uh, get them to be really curious and and use this curiosity to show them that they can really um, go beyond what we're being told about what technology is. So you can be creative with the tools you're being given, but you can also be more creative when you kind of start to understand that there's something else behind those tools, that there's actually a way that you can um, kind of like hack them, <laughs> ideally, you know, and just to kind of, it's a, um, 
it's a portal to this idea of, of reappropriation of those tools. Well, just the fact that you have to um, have this LED um, interact with the solar panel in order to transfer the audio, instead of it being a simple patch cable, um, uh, instead you have this physical proposition to connect these things. And, and in that is the creativity, I suppose, in that how you, you line them up and, and, uh, and the different possibilities that might be possible. You might want to line up two or three to an amplifier or whatever, and, and, and it becomes a field of play. At least that's how I perceived uh, this piece, Electric Bugs. Yeah, yeah, this is how so I, I, I feel. Um, and I feel like about this creative part, like um, sometimes uh, creativity is about like taking like the shortcut <laughs> to something like in this in this example, like using a wire would be like surely like the best shortcut. <laughs> To just have your sound but sometimes also to go around it and just kind of explore all the different kind of ways that you can uh, connect something to something else um, so then it kind of like opens your mind also on how you know like you were saying like the it, you can play with it so that it creates this volume but it creates also kind of a mixer uh, and also I was I was really I really like the idea of inter interference so that's nothing, I don't know, from my perspective and the way I work, I work with this idea of imperfection. So the imperfection itself kind of gives, or even the failure of it kind of give a new information about new ways of using this kind of, of, um, of um, I'd say, of, of connection, I guess. <laughs> um, but then you also offered chances for them to play with effects pedals and things like that. You kind of went beyond what the circuit does. Um, yeah. And, but the kids took to that, it seemed to me like, like there was no issue. That was not, um, didn't seem to be a um, uh, foreign concept. Um, do you find that working with younger kids, um, that there is a certain malleability to um, uh, to the way their imaginations and minds work, that um, makes this kind of exploration more possible than if you were working with uh, adults. And yeah, sometimes I feel that, <clears throat> especially with um, uh, works that um, is about technology, that can feel sometimes that it's. You could say, oh, you know, it's kind of cold or inaccessible, which is not. Uh, when you see children interact with that kind of work, they kind of add a new layer to it. Uh, sometimes it's really unexpected, but um, they kind of like have this approach where it's really easy for them to to just, I don't know how to say it, but they, you know, they don't have this thought process about analyzing the work, analyzing the whole thing, the concept, and and would it break, should I get close to it, and things like that. They just kind of like go straight to the point, which is actually interact, and which means that they just play with it straight away. So adding the idea of uh, adding effect pedal to uh, the project so that they can kind of like um, go beyond, you know, just like interacting with those as what they are 
Um, it's also a way to kind of um, uh, make it more easy for them because I, I know that the when I was young, I never had the opportunity of playing with effect pedals. <laughs> and even if I knew someone around me who had them, you know, it seemed like, oh my God, you know, it's so hard to play with mixers and create all, you know, all those buttons and stuff like that. They seem so complicated, but actually they're really simple. And you just need at some point in your life, someone who gives you a, a pedal effect <laughs> and just, you know, go like, you know, you can play with this button, this one and this knob and, you know, just go on, play with it. You won't break anything. And I guess that for me, it, it happened really late in my life. Maybe I was maybe like 30 years old, something like that, you know, because it seemed like, like, oh, you know. And so then after having this experience and seeing like how you can go straight into experimenting and kind of like just you have no limits, uh, basically, um, it felt like like it was a really cool opportunity to give to the children uh, at this young age uh, to say, you know, to have someone, an adult, <laughs> telling them, you know, oh, you know, this is a delay, just play with it and do whatever um, without having, you know, for myself, I could be, you know, full of fear of, oh, you know, they might break it and things like that. But no, I, I don't want to have to transmit that kind of um, holding back. I'm just yeah, I think it's yeah, it's a great way uh, to to just try something that sometimes you don't have the opportunity necessarily to to try it. When um, going back to when you started, you were in a visual art, studying visual arts, and you were interested in kinetic sculpture, but then you discovered sound in the process of of perhaps pursuing that line of thought. Now that you've been working with sound for a while. Does it feel like there's lots of new potentials ahead of you, or do you feel that you want to get back to something that you that you lost from the past, or where does where do, where do you see sound fitting into your future work um, from this point on? Uh, I feel like it's kind of like the the main medium uh, through which I can express myself. And I feel that it was kind of always there, but I didn't, I, I just never realized it. I needed other artists, other people around me telling me, oh, you know, you're a sound artist. <laughs> and at first, you know, I was being told that. I was like, no, you know, no, no I'm, I'm a visual artist. And I, <laughs> I just, you know, pulled, no, sound is just there. And they were like, no, you're kind of noisy. So <laughs> you should reconsider, you know, your position. And they were right. You know, I needed my people from my community to tell me and, and, and let me see, show me what, what, I, what was already there. And even before studying visual arts, I was studying cinema. So there's a really strong link with sound and visual image and maybe unconsciously um i kind of understood maybe that the power of sound in a work well it's interesting because that you mentioned cinema because um some of the earliest experimental sound work came out of um, film equipment and ex exploring the optical track and and um uh and different things uh, like that um, to produce, uh, you know, audio 
content as much that uh, as much as it did produce uh, certain visual effects. Yeah. And you're kind of touching on that by using these LEDs and turning them into sound. Yeah, you're right. Um, and I'm thinking like of uh, of uh, Ohamix from uh, Daphne Oham mm -hmm. that kind of also like has this idea of like creating uh, sound out of uh, drawings. Great. Well, um, thanks for your time and. Um, and we, uh, we, we will continue enjoying the uh, electric bugs uh, here at NASA. And, um, and hopefully uh, the listeners in the uh, uh, Wavefarm community will encounter your work in the future in some shape or form. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> that was Stephanie Castonguay in conversation with myself, Darren Copeland. Her work, Electric Bugs, is on exhibit until July 21st at the NASA North Media Arts Centre in South River, Ontario, Canada. Before uh, listening to the interview that's coming up with Alexis Baguette, I thought we would uh, uh, sample uh, s some examples of a sound text work. Uh, this is a piece by Charles Amerikanian. It's called Putts, and it's from 1981. Putts, 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 Spider, spider, action, the putts, rakes, antile, 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 
said the that for me. Bad spider, spider, prize, rakes, said that for me. Anti, prize, the putts, spider, spider, action, the putts, rakes, anti, 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 prize, the putts, spider, spider, action, rakes, anti, 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 the putts, prize, spider, spider, said action, the putts, rakes, anti, 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 the putts, prize, spider, spider, said action, the putts, spider, spider, action, Action. The huts. Race. Antile. 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 Prize. Said baffle me. Baffle me. Prize. Said baffle me. Baffle me. Blasting. Digit. Digit. Blasting. Digit. 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 Blasting. Digit. That was Putz by Charles Armacanian. It's an example of text sound composition, which was an area of interest to Alexis Baguette and to Richard Castellanos. I spoke with Alexis Baguette in advance of an exhibition coming to the Catskills in September, which will uh, showcase the vast audio archive of Richard Castellanos. How you situate the work that you do? Uh, are you a theorist? Are you an artist? Are you a writer? Are you all of those things? That's a great question, Darren, that I really could have answered very easily five years ago. I would have told you I was an independent curator. And now I am uh, I'm an amateur, an amateur researcher, occasional curator, uh, passionate collector and archivist um, who... Uh, has a day job and a family, <laughs> and I'm still I still putter at the things that I love. That's a terrible thing to say, but that's what feels like the truth. So, so so now you seem to place archiving <laughs> and collecting at the top of that list. Uh, maybe you can explain that's, why 
that is and, and how you got to there from curation and other activities? I guess the arc of, you know, I'd been a sound artist. Like when I, I first started, um, I first started working with tapes when I was a teenager, when I was a, when I was writing poems and I was performing poetry and I started to use tape recorders in, in poetry performances and then later to write poetry. And I would first record conversations between people and use them as a language material for poems that I was writing or that existed uh, as sound that I would perform. And then I became more and more interested in that, you know, when I went to college and started making tape collages and everything was using sound uh, for this kind of performative mode. And then later as installation, this was like in the late nineties and then early two thousands with the beginning of the mini disc. And, you know, it was a period of a lot of creation of, of sound works and I'll, and a very muddled space for presentation and for reception, you know, like where people fit in different disciplinary categories, you know, of music, non-music, sound art. And I was coming out of this kind of language background, this poetry language background as a sound artist. And I met Sophia Lerner. So Sophia introduced me to this great idea, which she called listening lounges. So she would just set up a space, uh, you know, usually in an art venue in Europe, she would have a place where people could come and play work that they were listening to. And this was, um, you know, before there was podcasting. And so this was kind of a social encounter and, uh, and, and distribution activity of like sharing different people's work and um, usually setting up, uh, oftentimes setting up good speakers for them or multi-channel speakers so they could listen to people's work. It was something different than a performance and um, different than a lecture. And so I started, I, I took that idea of Sophia's of listening lounges and started doing them um, all around in uh, in New England and in Canada. When I went to Japan, I went to Japan just like on a Buddhist tour kind of thing and but organized a bunch of listening lounges there as well and um, made connections with different Japanese electronic music musicians this is in the early 2000s and so through the whole listening lounge activity and um and starting to give lectures about the sound art that i liked um i kind of transitioned into being a curator uh, the way it happened really was that i left living in the country when i lived in the country i had a big studio with multiple speakers and was making multi-channel installations and when i moved to new york city i was working stereo and just making little collages for the radio which wasn't as satisfying to me as making performances or installations. And I just didn't know how to do that kind of work in the, in the space that I had in the city when I moved back to New York. And so I started curating and then I met Lauren Rosati and um, who was a young independent curator. And we started this organization called audience and we just wanted to um, explore the cinema hall as a platform, as like a fixed platform for presenting sound artworks and so Lauren and I worked on audience from like 2009 until 2014. And then we've been on kind of this extended hiatus since 2014 when I, um, when, when I had a family, when I became a dad and stuff. And we've been kind of, it's been five years now of us figuring out what comes next. We have like a really great circle of artists who audience worked with, who are all very encouraging of us to, um, to continue to explore the cinema and we're really fascinated by what all is going on in cinema technology the last three years. It seems like a, a period of transition, you know, because Atmos is this new emerging standard, but it's not widely adopted yet. 
So, um, so we're just kind of paying attention to what's going on with the with the standardization around cinemas and um, and what comes next and figuring out how audience can come back. But so in the course of curating sound art shows, you know, I built up a pretty wonderful archive of works. It's, it's very avant-garde material. It's not necessarily as distributed as it could have been. Um, and so I, I believe in preserving it and figuring out the right thing to do with all the works that we've preserved and collected. So what's sort of the best practices for preserving artwork, particularly, I guess, in your case, working outside of an institution or, uh, you know, when you're doing this as an individual? Uh, every work the audience presented, we usually have like three versions of. So we'll have like all of the mono tracks. Everything with audience was channel based, right? So we'll have multiple audio tracks and then we'll have a Pro Tools session. And then we will have, um, we'll have, I forget the name of that. It, uh, is it, what's, what's the name of the file? The, is it AC3? The, the Dolby surround mix file that. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. AC3. Yeah. And then we will have a DCP. So we have black screen um, digital cinema projects. So that's the digital version of a film that's ready to get loaded onto a digital cinema projector. So we have that package file as well. So the DCP files, um, we always have on two different hard drives and one of those hard drives, I migrate to a new hard drive every two years. And then the individual pro tool sessions, we just keep on this, like, you know, we keep a DVD data copy of each individual work. Um, and then we'll, and then there's like a, there's a big hard drive with everything. So that's all we do. I don't know if that's best practice, but it's definitely good enough. Um, we haven't. And then I guess there's some way of cataloging what what is where and where it's kept. I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean the it's or where it's located. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. There's not a good master catalog. Things depend on. There's a little bit of old fashioned as far as having the DVD, the data DVD copy, where you know films are all in this binder, <laughs> so you could look in that binder and right. see if it's there. So. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a transitional kind of. Thing, but it's, uh, it's it's but is this this archive is only for the use of audience uh, shows as opposed to being a public ar- access archive? Uh, currently, yeah. And then when we first went on our hiatus, we mm-hmm. we actually did um, audience did a uh, we had a sort of strategic plan of meeting about two years ago to decide if we were going to try to get the archive into another institution or just um, sort of or proceed. And the, the, the consensus there, we did a survey of all the artists we work with and we talked to some of our partners and everybody was like, if you guys can come back and just focus on the cinema, you should come back and then see which works from the archive. You might want to figure out a way to distribute as DCP. So that's, that's been our plan of how mm-hmm. we're going to. Right. I suppose, I don't know if it was parallel to this or prior to this, you, you, um, you had a, friendship with uh, Richard Costalance and you've become yeah. become uh, uh, I- involved in his process of archiving which is also an independent activity outside of institutions if I understand correctly so yeah I'm I'm very good friends with Richard Costalance who lives in this place called the Wordship uh, he lived in a house in Soho that was called the Wordship it had one of the largest private libraries in New York um, with more than 20,000 books. But he also, besides the books, he had um, a tremendous amount of recordings. Um, there was 
I don't know how many feet, I could look it up somewhere, how many feet of LPs he had, but he had walls and walls and walls of both cassettes and audio on VHS. He used to just record uh, WBAI and WKCR um, at all hours onto these extended play VHS tapes. And he uh, collected a lot of cassette tapes that were sent to him by different artists or that he would record. He had a... He, you know, he had a quarter-inch player in Soho that belonged to him. So a lot of different poets who were using sound or experimental musicians would come and use his quarter-inch player to, like, dub over the cassette in his place and leave him a copy of their works. Um, so, um, so there's just thousands and thousands of cassettes. So I helped Richard move from Soho to Queens um, from around 2009, from 2009 to 2011. And so he moved to this place in Queens, which he calls the Wordship 2. It's this, you know, one and a half story cement block factory. Uh, it had been a textile garment factory before he moved there. And it's just solid full of his books and recordings that are there. And I, I happen to be one of his executors, along with um, the artist Doug Puchowski and Igor Sadanovsky. Uh, we're, we're the executors of Richard's estate when it's done. And so I've been thinking about, you know, how we're going to, what we're going to do with all the recordings. Like I've taken on, you know, the recordings as my special focus. And um, so I've been trying to think more objectively about the cassettes. And so when I got the call this year for the Media Arts History Conference, and there's a, a track, a session about archiving, I just wanted to like look at Richard's tapes, just the cassette tapes and see um, some kind of story that came out to me. And so it turned out that Richard had this one um, small collection of about 120 tapes, which he called the Audio Art Archive. And um, the tapes dated from 1977 through 2006. Uh, it first started being cataloged in, in 1994. Um, and there were, there were tapes there from Turbulence, TELUS, Slow Scan, uh, a lot from New Wilderness Audiographics and a lot of individual tapes from artists and recordings that Richard had made off of the radio, um, off of uh, WDR, uh, Westdeutsche Rundfunk, and also off of WNYC in New York. So that's the, that's the collection that I'm looking at. Um, and uh, a lot of these um, sources, except for uh, VDR and, uh, and the... Um, and the public radio in, in New York, uh, a lot of these were kind of very independent ventures like TELUS and, and uh, the New, New Wilderness uh, Audiographics and all the others. Like it, um, it was almost like he was archiving the stuff that others weren't archiving. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's an archivist of the avant-garde, uh, for sure. <laughs> and doing this really out of his own expense and time. Uh, yes, uh, but also um, it's also like the crumbs of his writings. You know, these these uh, these tapes are contributions to what he was writing. You know, the the recordings of the radio are a different story, but uh, but the tape recordings in this in this collection are very much all works that he's written about, or whether he's written about the artists or written about the works themselves that are there. So I guess there's a fair amount of representation of Cage and other people that he's written about a lot. There's Cage in the total archive, but not so much in this in this particular collection. So, do you see a um, a connection between 
all the things he was collect, collecting and and what he was thinking about in his writing and are there is it really um is there a, a clear correlation yeah i mean well there's the there's the correlation that happens in anybody's biography any artist or critic's biography which is who they met and what they were drawn to you know so richard is drawn to this avant-garde work and he's and he's very much drawn to work that's at the boundary of the poetic or the textual um so in his own compositions you know where he's using where, where he's making text sound or or po or video poetry which is based on text um and then the text poetry work or sound text work that he's collecting and then there's the people that he meets you know so he w was you know, he happens to have met a lot of German artists from having been invited to Berlin. Like Berlin is the only other place outside of New York that he spent significant time in. Um, so that's the the other hmm. center of connections that he has. So it's like I, I went to school in Vermont and hmm. spent a lot of time in Montreal and made a bunch of friends in Montreal who I've stayed in touch with over now 30 years, you know. And so it's uh, that's like this other community that I have the same way that Richard had another community in, in Berlin. So the the exhibition that you're planning on on uh, about about Richard's archive, uh, how how are you representing these audio recordings in a in I guess what's effectively a visual exhibition? Yeah, well, that is a great question and requires me to clarify something. So, uh, for, I'm giving a lecture about Richard's audio art archive, which is called Tapes Found in the Wordship, and I'm going to give that lecture uh, in Denmark at the Media Arts History Conference in August. And then in looking at these tapes and talking about them with different people and thinking about listening lounges and activities like that, I met some people who are in Catskill who run a space called Fahrenheit 451. So that's a little bookstore cafe that's in renovation at 451 Main Street in Catskill. And so they have a space in the building which is called Empty Shelves, which is going to be a um, a gallery space for publications. So I'm putting together a show that will be there that comes out of the lecture, which I'm calling Audio Mail. And that is going to be additioned audio publications uh, that will be just on display on the shelves there for people to look at, listen to, and buy if they want. And that, that will open in September at the Fahrenheit 451 most of that will be drawn from Richard's collection or is this also from your own personal collection? Yeah. So the, um, the selection of what's going to be there begins with what I found in Richard's audio art collection. There's also, um, one of, one of the stories I'm telling about the tapes that I found in Richard's are, I've been looking at, um, audio periodicals, you know, so, um, a lot of the recordings that are in there were periodicals and, I just started thinking about how the periodical as a form falls apart the moment that we that we transition from from tape or later disc media into um, streaming and you know streaming podcasting digital storage. There's not the same um, uh, publishing as a periodical doesn't make the same sense and and isn't viable as a uh, as a way of proceeding. Econo you know, economically, you can't get people to subscribe to a periodical. So the, that's a bunch of the recordings I looked at, which then in CD he has them. There's the Aerial. Um, there's I Considered Your Own Deep Wireless Festival of Periodical. I mean, I know it's a compilation, but 
it's arguably a once a year periodical. There's um, issues of the open space publication um, and some of the other audio periodicals that are in there. Uh, uh, Telus, which can which Carol considers a periodical. Slow Scan, um, which is on tape, and um, yeah. So I'm ordering multiples of many of these. I'm just like out there on Discogs buying copies to have for things because I'm not showing what Richard has. There's some that that are in my own um, that are in my own collection. Then I'm inviting some different publishers to send multiples of what they have. There's also a few periodicals that weren't in Richard's collection that I'm going to invite people to um, to submit to. And I don't know if I want to talk to about them since it's not confirmed. But yeah, I'm reaching out to a small group of of other people. With this exhibit, then you're making this stuff available. People can purchase. People can peruse it and get to know it, and then maybe follow up on it afterwards. What what happens after that? Is there is there a way of digitizing some of these, uh, or are they already existing in an online form nowadays? Because a lot of this uh, work, like Telus and others, uh, predate uh, uh, internet dissemination. Yeah. So um, there's a I'm asking that question separately. I mean, I'm definitely asking myself that question about all the tapes that are in Richard's audio archive. I'm trying to find out what is unique there and should be digitized and not, uh, you know, if, if it's not preserved somewhere else. Everything that's there is on just, you know, regular C60 cassette tape. So it's not as though it's high quality anything if it is there. That's, that's the sad truth. You know the cassette is not a uh, not a good archival format, <laughs> and so um, but I am determining what what may be unique for for everything in the show. They're all editions, and so I am assuming that in most cases that that the work has been preserved somewhere else. I, I mean, I I will be asking that kind of question, but it's not the focus for for anything that's not in Richard's archive that I'm adding to the show. Is there a sense of um... Uh, I was wondering if you could speak to the rarity of things that, that, that in the case of these cassettes, it's the only copy of something perhaps, uh, or only, you know, less than 10 or less, you know, um, and stuff that was only heard about through perhaps even a chance encounter. Um, uh, is there a sense that you're unearthing forgotten gems of the past? Um, is this part of what's driving you? There's a tape in Richard's there that um, is from Doug Kahn that Doug Kahn mailed to Richard at some point, like when he was a student. <laughs> and I, I want to ask Doug, uh, I, I should just ask him. I haven't, I've been meaning for months to write an email to be like, hey, did that, was that ever published anywhere else? Like, do you have a copy of this, of this piece anywhere? Um, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, some of the tapes in Richard's are definitely quite rare. When I'm looking on Discogs for copies of the other edition works, there's many that I'm not finding available anywhere on Discogs, which doesn't mean that they aren't held somewhere else. But yeah, Richard's Richard's house definitely contains some unique items, and um, and it's really hard with the 20th century, with you know the glut of the 20th century, to determine what is actually unique. And I guess this parallels his print collection and his other, you know, other media that he's collected. Yeah. Uh, that this that the audio is just one one um, microcosm of the same the same development. The same problem in every media there. Mm -hmm. uh, but we know that there's some things in there that are unique, but 
Um, there's, uh, you know, in books, there's something really interesting that happened in books um, where from like 2004 until like 2000 and I feel like until like 2016 or 17, there was this all pervasive feeling that all books were redundant and that um, that they would all be preserved and we needed to just get rid of all the books and make way for the for the digital future of the book, right? And um, and sometime around 2016, there was like this kind of turn where like so many books had been preserved that there was a sense that like whatever hadn't been preserved by 2016 may or may not ever be preserved and may be unique. <laughs> I don't know if that rings true for anybody else, but that's like just a a uh, a, a feeling that I've had of of the zeitgeist around digitization and and in the book world. So we're kind of hitting at a point where we want the printed copy again? Yeah, or that the infrastructure for... I, I, I don't know why things slow down, but I feel like things slow down. It could just be that new production has gotten so much faster that like uh, that the, the the whole machinery of digitization has fallen apart uh, in the in the speed of, of publication now. So, um, so we can't keep up... There's not enough hard drive space. There's not enough places to put it. We can't keep up, so why should we? Yeah, and that the pa- the paper actually is a is a good archival and distribution format for for that what you want. If the goal is to have humans, um, especially humans in a near, you know, in a geographically specific place, obtain information that that paper is appropriate. <laughs> that a book works just great. <laughs> The the show in the Catskills will be uh, in September. Yeah, hopefully opening September thirteenth or fourteenth at the same time as um, as the Basilica Soundscape. Uh, we're gonna we're not gonna confirm until August, depending on construction work. But the the goal right now is to open that weekend, and then the show will be up for six weeks. Just to conclude, uh, I wanted to get back to the lecture you're doing for the Media Media Arts Histories uh, Conference. Um, will that lecture be available or archived or captured in some form? Well, the Media Arts Histories Conference is going to be publishing um, a book, their annals. So um, I don't know the timeline on that, but I know we submit in um, we submit the papers, you know, in October for the publication. So probably the publication comes out next year. Well, uh, keep us posted and uh, on that, and uh, and thanks for uh, spending the time with me to share uh, share a, a window into the world of uh, archiving and collecting things and and how these uh, manifest themselves into exhibitions and presentations. Thank you, Darren. It was great talking to you. That was Alexis Baguette on archiving audio art which will be on display in the Catskills in September. You've been listening to Making Waves. It's a monthly show about sound art, produced for WGXC Wavefarm by New Adventures in Sound Art. Dreams Freud dreamed, or dreams Freud dreamed Freud dreamed. Drums of dreams, Freud dreamed Freud dreamed. Dreams Freud dreamed, or dreams Freud deemed Freud dreamed. Spies, the sickle, pies saint size, pies saint size says it, cycle, 
Raise rhythmic, pays rhythmic, pies, saints size, raise rise. Dreams Freud dreamed, or dreams Freud dreamed Freud dreamed. Drummed drums, or dreams Freud dreamed Freud dreamed. The berry, laser, shams and sizes baffle regiment dress. Drama. And cheese rightly fond sentiment shams. Center peak, a fit of center peak and paisley this. Break, the bike break, Boston calls me Boston. My Boston, break, my Boston regular break, burial bake. Merdungham, postulate. Freud dreamed, Freud dreamed. Freud dreamed, Freud dreamed, Freud dreamed. Freud dreamed, Freud dreamed. Freud dreamed, Freud dreamed, Freud dreamed. Dream. Freud dream. Freud. Dream, Freud dream. Dream, Freud's dreams, Freud dreamed. Freed. Dream freed, dream freed. Freud's dreams, Freud dreamed. Dreams, dreams fade. Freud's dreams, Freud dreamed. Freud dreamed. Latch it. Dream dreams. Freud's dreamers dreamed. Dream dreamers deemed. Freud's dreamers dreamed. Snooker. Dream dreamers dreamed. Freud's dreamers dreamed. Suck astute. Couple. Dreams dreamers deemed. Freud's dreamers dreamed. Drake. Sandwich. Trunk. Dreams dreamers dreamed. Freud's dreamers deemed. Label. Shake. Patio. Tundra. Dreams dreams. Dreams dreams. Freud's dreamers deemed. Lateral, fine art posse, scene, Leipzig, parallel, dreams, 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 dream dreamers, dreams, sigh, deems, that loud air conditioning. Dream dreams, Freud dreamed. Dream dreams, Freud. Dreams, Freud. Guttural dreams, Freud dreamed. Freud dreamed. Dreams Freud dreamed, or dreams Freud dreamed Freud dreamed. On trams, drums of dreams, drum drum dream drum dream that. Drum drum dream drum dream though. Drum dream drum. Drum dream drum. Drum drum dream drum. Dream, 
Drum dreamed, drum dreamed. Dreams Freud dreamed. Or dreams Freud dreamed, Freud dreamed. Drums, drams of dreams. Drums, drams of dreams. Freud dreamed. Freud dreamed.